and welcome to the sixth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Donald H. Sanborn III. Don is the theater reviewer for Town Topics, a newspaper in Princeton, New Jersey. His freelance articles have appeared in publications such as Princeton Magazine, HowlRound, and Musical Theater Today. As a composer, lyricist, and librettist, he has written the musical Robin Hood, How Legends Are Made. As a composer, he has contributed music to Raw Impressions Musical Theater and has written art songs as well as choral and chamber music. He is a founding member of From Scratch Performance Company and has composed incidental music for three of their productions. We're going to talk today about the musicals of Stephen Schwartz. Hey Don, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, good evening, Shoshana. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before we get to our uh, birthday celebrant, we are going to first start with our get to know our guest questions. Great. So what was your first experience with a musical? Well, I had two, uh, one right after the other. In the second grade, I was fortunate to uh, see as a field trip, but uh, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. The happiness from that musical was still one of my you know, favorite musical theater songs. And then the year after that, I uh, saw Annie at the Chicago's Erie Crown Theater. And I uh, still remember the uh, overture from the, that, how much of an impression that uh, left on me as an eventual trumpet player. Uh, it starts with the uh, solo, or as I like to say, orphan trumpet playing a bit of Tomorrow. And then the overture ends with the entire brass section uh, uh, playing that tune. And unfortunately, yeah. I've long since lost my uh, program from that, but uh, I looked things up and it looks like I would have seen uh, Gary Beach as Rooster. Oh, nice. And I love uh, how you highlight the overture from that. I feel like not many people talk about the overture from Annie, but it's also uh, a great uh, part of that show. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, the original uh, orchestrator was Philip J. Lang. What is the last great musical you saw? Uh, the last uh, great musical I saw, I would say, was uh, Ride the Cyclone. I uh, actually I saw it at uh, Mark Carter Theater, re- directed by the new artistic director there, Sarah Rasmussen. And if uh, uh, you'll indulge me, I'd actually like to uh, uh, read uh, the first uh, paragraph I uh, wrote. Uh, I wrote... Uh, In the musical Ride the Cyclone, six teenagers are killed in an accident while riding the titular amusement park ride. Uh, In an otherworldly warehouse, they meet the amazing Karnak, a mechanical fortune teller that is about to be destroyed by a bass-playing rat who is uh, chewing on his power cord. The fortune teller offers to send one of the teenagers back from the dead, instigating a literal fight for their lives. And then in my next paragraph, I just commented that it must have been entertaining to uh, listen to early pitches for that show. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I keep missing that show, uh, but I've heard uh, great things about it. Uh, well, what, uh, what's interesting about Karnak is, I mean, I know we're both, uh, from what you've posted the, on social media, I know we're both fans of the play uh, Our mm-hmm. Town. And the Karnak functions are not so differently from the stage manager in our town, sort of guides both the other characters and the uh, audience through the proceedings. Different personality, but similar function. What's a musical that people would be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised? I think my answer would be uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, a musical. Uh, The reason I say that uh, is that... uh, uh, I find the, I had an opportunity to uh, see a bit of a TV show. I would find it, uh, no offense to those who put it on, I would find it not the best animated thing out there. And I confess, when I found out that it was going to become a musical, uh, my uh, response, which I gave uh, voice to, not publicly, but uh, in private correspondence, was, uh, why? <laughs> and uh, But uh, it's actually the... Uh, 
televised version is on Paramount Plus. And uh, so just out of curiosity more than anything else, I started watching it, and I actually liked the way they went about it. Number one, they uh, kept the actors' uh, humanity a bit by not dressing them in literal costumes that make them look exactly like the characters do on the show. They just, like, for example, Spongebob just wears a yellow shirt, and that's how we know he's Spongebob. But I also like the uh, plot they uh, gave it. It's a satire on uh, how we respond to news, uh, news of crises that are happening. Goodness knows there have been plenty of crises recently, and the, all the characters uh, react differently. So that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think I had a similar uh, reaction that you had to yours when uh, I first heard about it because I had only seen the show, uh, you know, as a babysitter, like when the kids would <laughs> would watch it, and I never was that into it. But yeah, I saw it and uh, had a, also a similar uh, reaction to seeing it. I was I thought it was so great. It's infectious. The score is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that it's written by different people it's it really feels like you know of one piece uh what's your favorite musical that no one else has heard of i don't know if uh, uh i that no one else has heard of it but i don't know that it's as known as it uh, should be it's a little by little are you familiar with that one no i don't think so but i was actually fortunate to see it at uh, york and the uh, darren baker who was also starring in little by little uh, also uh, came in and uh, actually, I got uh, invited to uh, go see it, which was uh, fun. And the other uh, performer was uh, Liz Larson. But oh, it's yeah. fun. That the, the music is by uh, Brad Ross, who actually uh, uh, interviewed for a HowlRound uh, column. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, all sung, and it's uh, about uh, three friends who eventually, as they uh, grow up, it's uh, uh, two women and uh, one man, and so he's. Uh, Three friends uh, grow up, a, a love triangle uh, forms. Uh, both the women uh, love the uh, man. But yeah. th- it's a fun score. Oh, that does sound fun. Who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical? So I think uh, I want to go with uh, both uh, George's and uh, Sunday in the Park with George. Because uh, we're, uh, we're writers so who can't uh, uh, sympathize with uh, a creative person. Mm-hmm. And plus, I just, one of my favorite musical theater quotes is the white, a blank page or canvas. And then I love what they say at the end, his favorite, so many per, uh, possibilities. Yeah, yeah. No, he's a great, he's such a great character. Uh, and what about antagonist? Oh, uh, antagonist... Uh, but let's go ahead and go with uh, one of the characters from a musical. We'll be discussing it uh, length later. Wicked, uh, Madame Morrible. Uh, what's yeah. interesting about uh, her is uh, number one, she uh, uh, is uh, very interested in uh, both of the uh, protagonists. First, she uh, sees Elphaba uh, as a possibility, but then when Elphaba uh, turns against the wizard, then uh, Madame Morrible latches uh, right on to Glinda. Mm-hmm. And also, what's interesting about uh, Madame Morrible is uh, uh, she's very establishment. A lot of the uh, I speak uh, 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 mostly comes from her. Right, right. That's true. And uh, what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to? Yeah, and I have a couple possible answers for that, but I think the one I'll uh, go with is uh, from a musical that's actually, it looks like it's going to be getting a revival at Lincoln Center this spring, Camelot, mm-hmm. which uh, starts previews in March and uh, I guess opens in April, but I love the final scene from that when you know, Arthur thinks that uh, his legacy has uh, totally been destroyed, the, 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 what he wanted to uh, start has been destroyed by his uh, human uh, legacy named uh, Mordred. Then all of a sudden we meet uh, uh, Tom of uh, Orlok, this, this kid who uh, Arthur doesn't know until the last scene, but he's heard all these tales of the round uh, table and is inspired by it. And the only reprise we hear in that show is the title song, At That Moment. 
Hmm. And I love the line, you know, some of the drops sparkle, some of the drops uh, do sparkle. Uh, Arthur has uh, a biological son, Mordred, who turns against his ideals, but then he also has this uh, sort of, you might say, spiritual son, this kid who's not related to him, but is uh, totally inspired by his ideals. Oh, interesting. So I ha- I don't know that show at all, really, except for a few songs, so hopefully I'll get to see it and experience this moment you're talking about. <laughs> well, let's turn to our topic, which is uh, Stephen Schwartz, uh, composer, lyricist, and uh, when this episode airs, it will be his birthday, uh, March 6th. And how old is he on this? 75. Yeah, so it's a big birthday, uh, if you think about birthdays in that way, but uh, 75, 75th birthday. So uh, this is a really great way to honor him and his work, um, which is, you know, a lot of great musicals and songs and more still to come. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's start with um, kind of your journey with with Stephen Schwartz and his work. Sure, uh, and two things I have to uh, uh, say in advance of that. Uh, first, uh, you mentioned he's a composer lyricist, which of course is the place that most known for, uh, most known for. Uh, but uh, also, let us not forget uh, he has been a, a director. He directed uh, Working. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah. he uh, conceived or co-conceived. And then he's also uh, been a very generous mentor through the uh, ASCAP workshop. The uh, right, modern right. Cat, and he's always uh, fun to, I've audited a, a few of, of the events uh, hosted by uh, that, where he was uh, moderating, and he's always fun to listen to. Uh, he always gives you something to learn from. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, the other thing I wanted to uh, say is uh, I would be remiss if I did not offer a shout out to uh, author Carol DeGere, who uh, yeah. wrote this uh, biography of him. Uh, if you want anybody who wants to uh, know more about uh, Stephen Schwartz in terms of the background of how his shows were created, should read uh, Defying Gravity, the creative career of Stephen Schwartz from Godspell to Wicked. And then uh, years later, uh, Carol DeGere also wrote uh, a book called The Godspell Experience, which mm. uh, obviously yeah, really, uh, explores uh, that show. And then she also runs uh, a newsletter, The Schwartz Scene. Yeah, when I was in uh, seventh grade, I think uh, my mom brought uh, home the uh, tape from the film of uh, Godspell. So I got to hear that and then... Uh, uh, not long after that, I yeah, saw the film. Mm-hmm. It was uh, many years uh, later that I uh, saw a production of the stage show, I think maybe at York Theater. Uh, and then many years uh, after that, uh, I uh, saw the uh, film uh, Pocahontas, which mm-hmm. uh, he obviously did the uh, lyrics for uh, music by Alan Menken on that. Yeah. And uh, we'll uh, probably talk about this uh, later, but... Uh, there's the the first of uh, what I'd uh, call one of his Schwartzisms uh, in that uh, uh, the title character in the song Colors of the Wind, the title character wrote, uh, says to uh, John Smith, how can there be so much that you don't know you don't know? And mm-hmm. then later in that song, she uh, turns that around and says, so, but if you do this and that, you'll learn things you never knew you never uh, knew. Compare that to a line you know, Glenda has in uh, Popular from Wicked, where uh, she's uh, saying to Elphaba, well, if there's somebody who uh, uh, needs a makeover, I know, I know exactly what they need. <laughs> yeah. The repetition of I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. And then, the, and so then right after uh, Pocahontas, he did... Uh, a Hunchback of Notre Dame, which right. uh, I think is uh, uh, one of uh, Alan Menken's best scores. Mm-hmm. I like Schwartz's lyrics to that, too. And then uh, years later, I got to re- review a production of the uh, stage show uh, uh, in my capacity as a theater reviewer. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're making that into a musical. I was going to just interject that. Um, yeah, those those two movies were had to have been my first 
encounter with Steven Schwartz, even though I didn't know, you know, who he was at that time. Then uh, also around that time, uh, I uh, started uh, grad school. I was going to uh, NYU. I was studying composition with an uh, aim toward writing both musical theater and uh, contemporary classical. But uh, in terms of musical theater, my uh, composition professor, Steve Rosenhaus, uh, assigned me the baker's wife to listen to. He said, if you want to uh, hear an example of uh, how to really use songs to define character, listen to the baker's wife. Hmm. And obviously that show had problems and uh, I think one of your recent guests uh, talked about uh, shows where the score was uh, great. The, I mean, the book had problems, and that uh, may have had a, been an issue with the Baker's Wife. Uh, mm-hmm. All of us uh, in Carol DeGere's book, uh, Stephen Schwartz defends uh, Joseph Stein, who wrote the uh, book for that uh, show. He, he said the book. Uh, it's not that the book was weak. It's just that initially uh, there were tonal differences between the book and the score. Mm. They were a generation apart, and so it took them a while to get on the same wavelengths. And they went back and revised it years later. Now, it's, recently, it's had uh, several uh, productions, but initially it had problems. But uh, in terms of the score, uh, the characters are very clearly demarcated with the music. Mm. And then uh, in 97, I, I started uh, auditing some of the ASCAP workshop for the first time, and I actually got to uh, meet Schwartz. And uh, uh, we'll probably talk about this uh, later, but uh, it was in the course of the, the ASCAP workshop that I actually uh, uh, very briefly uh, talked to Schwartz about uh, using narrators. Mm. And he had an answer to a question, a question I had that was very helpful to some of my own writing. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I think it was around like the late 90s when I first like really knew who Stephen Schwartz was because I saw a high school production of Children of Eden. And that was like my first like real encounter with like Stephen Schwartz as like Oh, like there's this person, Stephen Schwartz, who writes, <laughs> who writes musicals, and this is one of them. I think that was the first one, and then Pippin that I also saw a high school production of. But I think Children of Eden was first. Yeah, Schwartz writes a lot about uh, generational tension and parent-child relationships, and uh, there's a wonderful song from Children of Eden, "The Hardest Part of Love." Mm-hmm. Go, and that was a good example of that. Yeah, that's a lovely score. And it's only in Eden grows a rose without a thorn And your children start to leave you on the day that they are born They will leave you there to cheer for them They will leave you there to mourn ever so Like an ark on uncharted seas their lives will be tossed And the deeper is your love for them the crueler is the cost and just when they start to find themselves It's when you fear they're lost oh, But you cannot close the acorn once the oak begins to grow And you cannot close your heart to what it feels and needs to know That the hardest part of love And the rarest part of love and the truest part of love, love is letting go. I mean, there's the themes, you know, that he brings out in those Bible stories, but just the music itself like the like the the grandness of it um especially like in the act one closer the children children of eden song um it's just real it's just so lovely
Then I was fortunate to see uh, Wicked on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Actually, if I remember right, with but the original uh, stars, Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't see it till after they had left. Yeah, I think I've actually seen Wicked six times, I want to say. Oh, wow. One of the reasons for that number is that I was I volunteered for the TDF autism friendly performances for it a few times, so that up <laughs> that up the number of like because you st- you kind of stand you know in the theater so you watch it, and it was uh the yeah and the last time I saw it was right before the pandemic started like in oh, February, wow. February twenty twenty so obviously the book for Wicked was by. Uh... Uh, Winnie Holzman adapted to Gregory Maguire's uh, novel. She is an alum of my grad program, so I've she's come and talked about the process of adapting Wicked, which is, um, you know, very fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of uh, interesting uh, uh, things we could say about it. Obviously, it's uh, uh, probably fairly uh, uh, often told that uh, Schwartz was immediately uh, drawn to that novel as soon as he. Uh, read it to immediately you know, saw musical possibilities uh, right from the get-go. He mm-hmm. said, this is the best idea I'd ever read. And certainly it's so uh, natural in terms of having a protagonist uh, whose uh, physical appearance uh, precludes her uh, being uh, accepted by the community, let alone uh, finding a romantic partner, even though, uh, spoilers, that can we, can we just agree that there are going to be plenty of spoilers and uh, anyone who really doesn't want it spoiled for them should go see the show before they hear all this. But uh, anyway, but uh, obviously Elphaba uh, eventually gets together with uh, Fiero, but uh, earlier in the show she doesn't think she's going to be able to. So in that uh, sense, that puts uh, Wicked very much in the tradition, I think, of shows like uh, Phantom of the Opera or uh, Passion or even a Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is, I think, a point I made in my Hunchback uh, review. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, another interesting thing about it, that Schwartz conceived the show before 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, but it opened, obviously, in 2003, two years uh, after that, and there are several... Uh, things in the show which make it very of that era. Mm-hmm. Like in the second act, uh, uh, Glinda says, well, fellow audience, as terrifying as terror is, let's celebrate. Every time I see it, and as I said, I've seen it a lot, but every time I see it, I'm always like, oh, yeah, like there's so much nod to like, you know, fascism and like, you know, how the government and the media function in our society. Propaganda, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not, and not just media. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, Madame Morrible, who we were talking about earlier, uh, says she's a press secretary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, there's also propaganda in terms of uh, a show within a show, a uh, theater. Uh, there's, uh, during uh, one short day, Glinda and Elphaba go see this show called Wizomania. Oh, yeah. The whole thrust of that uh, miniature show is, isn't a ruler great. Elfie, come on! We'll be late for Wizomania! Who's the mage? Who's major? Itinerary is making all us merrier. Who's the sage? Who's sageling? Sailed in to save our posterior's Who's it? Who's the hot air
like it, the show is about their friendship, but how that backdrop of the propaganda and the government, like what that does to their friendship exactly. the show is, is kind of basically the, I guess like the thrust of the thrust of the show, because that's what, that's how their friendship. I mean, there's, there's the ro- the love triangle and all that that we've talked about, but it's really like how they respond. They each respond to the the governments and the what's happening in their world. Well, I shouted out to Carol Desjardins' books. I do have to say, there's one other book that's an interesting read. It's called "The Changed for Good: A Feminist History of the Musical Theater." Oh, it's by yeah. Professor Stacy Wolf. I've heard about that. Yeah, read that. But uh, uh, Dr. Wolf makes the uh, case that uh, the real look, romance in that uh, story uh, isn't Elphaba uh, and Fiero. It's Elphaba and Glenda. Oh, totally. Yeah. Part of the reasoning is uh, the uh, a sort of adversarial relationship uh, that starts out between those two early on, and uh, loathing is exactly like. Uh, Curly and Lori in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, one short day when they do go see that show and the when they're spending the day in Oz, um, that's like their their love song, their coming together kind of uh, moment, I guess, in the show. It's something I think Schwartz does uh, so well with the music and uh, that, uh, that and at the very uh, beginning of what is this feeling, uh, which is. Mm-hmm. Otherwise known as uh, loathing, uh, they actually sing a bit of uh, the melody that uh, becomes the uh, main thrust of "For Good," mm. which is their uh, big farewell number. Yeah. yeah when when, uh, Elf- when the uh, alphabet uh, sings, of course, I'll care for NASA, and uh, Glenda says, "And I'll rise above it." And they're, they're both complaining to their parents about having to be your uh, roommates. Right. And- there's been some confusion over rooming here at Shiz. But of course I'll care for NASA. But of course I'll rise above it. For I know that's how you'd want me to respond. Yes. That quote of melody you know, becomes uh, for, for good at the end. Who can say if I've been changed for the better? I knew you I have been changed for good I think the music for Wicked is is so good and um, it's those little details like that you know how the theme like each theme is planted you know for good is like planted in when they have their first song together and um to come back at the end like things like that is just that's why that's what makes it so good yeah <laughs> and that, that whole motif that runs through the show the uh, unlimited mm-hmm. which of course uh, is uh, borrowed from somewhere over the rainbow but it's so subtle you, you probably hear it instinctively but unless you're looking for it you probably don't instantly say oh that's over the rainbow but it's mm. There, it's just familiar enough. Unlimited, together we're unlimited. Together we'll be the greatest team there's ever been. Glenda dreams the way we planned them. If we work in tandem, there's no fight we cannot win. Interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, he, uh, Schwartz, in fact, uh, said uh, once at a presentation that he, he quoted just seven notes, which apparently is the legal maximum. <laughs> yeah, because I know, like, I've definitely, I mean, in any adaptation from a known property, you're dealing with, you know, what's known that you can keep to be familiar. And I know I've, you know, uh, heard him say on in interviews that you know they everything from the movie had to stay you know it it had to be 
fixed. You know, they couldn't. Yeah, there's a section in Carol's book called Legally Wicked, where this uh, uh-huh. lawyer came in and saying, well, you can have this, but you can't have that. Right, right. Oh, interesting. I know Somewhere Over the Rainbow really well as a song, and I had no Wicked really well, and I never put that together. That yeah, is- <laughs> listen to the uh, Unlimited motif, and then listen to Over the Rainbow. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking about the yeah, sort of cultural uh, aspect of uh, uh, 2003 when Wicked opened, but I think it's also interesting to talk about just uh, the type of entertainment that was popular back then. Uh, that was the uh, full uh, thrust of the Harry Potter era, and also mm-hmm. uh, Lord of the Rings uh, was uh, a popular film series, uh, too, at that point. So uh, fantasy and the uh, the idea of uh, going to school to learn fantasy, was uh, learn magic, sorry, was very right. much in the year. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is that whole, it's the whole thing of, like, they're going to a magic school. Like, that's you know, that is very, I mean, it's very reminiscent of Harry Potter, but which is, it's crazy how that's 20 years ago now. <laughs> yeah, it'll be 20 in October. I know. Um, now we have the film to look forward to, actually films. They're doing it as two films. I know, which I don't know how I feel about that, but I guess Maybe. we'll just, well, guess we'll see how it comes out. But I think uh, what's also interesting about Wicked is I think uh, in some ways it can be looked uh, at as a, sort of uh, uh, culmination of uh, Schwartz's uh, work, because it has uh, a couple of uh, Schwartzisms. I mean, there's the, the obviously the uh, what we were talking about uh, earlier, the uh, I know I know this. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's uh, also the uh, uh, parent-child uh, tension. The yes. wizard yeah. uh, is a father. He doesn't even know he's a father. Right. The person she thinks is her father is also plays a a role in the beginning also exactly i don't know that there are that many fantasy musicals so i feel like this also filled uh that kind of role to have like a really good uh fantasy musical that's a great play they actually did do a musical of lord of the rings uh, over in england although that may have uh, been later i saw that in the 2007. Mm. That may not have been done until after Wicked, I'm not sure. But no, I think but in terms of uh, Broadway 2003, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it definitely like you walk into that theater. Now we're just talking about, I'm just talking about like the, the direction and stagecraft and all that. But it's like you walk into that theater, you see that dragon up on the top, like the map of the world. Like, That's what I love, the map on the curtain. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're just like immediately in like another world and it's very exciting. And I, yeah, I think a lot of people or I've heard people question like, why, why is Wicked so successful? And I think one reason is like the relationship between Glinda and Elphaba for sure. But I think also it's that, that fantasy element um, that people really respond to, like just a musical that's able to create this, other worlds and it's it's helped by the fact that you know we know that world the world is somewhat familiar to us because it's the wizard of oz so we know it's oz but it really is very different from like the actual wizard of oz that we know right well obviously it closes the plot hole from at least the film i don't don't know about the novel but with the film i always uh, wondered why the wicked witch would have uh, a substance, i.e. water, that's uh, so lethal to her right there. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it. I I do enjoy that. Like, yeah, like why would water kill a... I, yeah. <laughs> so I love how they turned that into a thing. I, one thing I love about Wicked is all the false foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. It starts right from the uh, Witches' uh, I Want song where she... Uh, uh, says, uh, I'd be so happy I could melt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it how, how Schwartz uh, keeps us thinking that uh, what happens in the show is going to be exactly what uh, happens in the film, which obviously eventually yeah, isn't really. Yeah. Yeah, it's so well done. But yeah, what's your 
what's your favorite song in Wicked? Well, I think we'll look probably uh, talk about the uh, end, but I really like the uh, opening. No one mourns the Wicked. Yeah, we will talk about that later for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, mine, I think I have to go with Defying Gravity. (laughs) I just it's I it's funny because I read the book before I saw the musical because Winnie Holtzman, I was going to hear Winnie Holtzman talk about uh, adapting, you know, writing the book for the musical. And I hadn't seen the musical yet. And I was like, well, I can't run out and see it right now, but I can at least read the novel. So I read the novel and listened to the cast recording and I just felt like Defying Gravity just so cap. I mean, the book, the novel is very different from the musical, but I just felt like Defying Gravity just captured just the spirit of that book. And obviously, of course, the musical as well. And that moment where she flies, of course, is just. Oh, amazing theatrically. And I love the. uh... Uh, sort of bass ostinato Schwartz has it in there that uh, really, I mean, Schwartz has said explicitly that this is what he was going for, but there's that uh, those bass notes that uh, really do give you the sense of somebody finding their resolve. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's there. And then that that builds to the, the last verse when she's going to fly that it's, I mean, it's so simple. It, it, it really, it's just like a, it's just like a crescendo and um, I forget the musical term for when something kind of like speeds up like that, but. Um, Accelerando? Yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking of. Um, just that that build to it and but how she's moving, like all the elements coming together. But I think that music under it is so crucial, how it how it's like sounds like she's lifting off the ground. I hope you're happy, my As a bonus, it also sets up the uh, separation of uh, Glinda and Elphaba. Uh, they have falling out after having finally come together, and that sets up the entire second act. Yeah, I was interested in what you you know mentioned before about the you know this being a culmination of his uh, his work, and I think I mean he has so many musicals he's known for, but I think Wicked will probably be his most famous show, but. I mean, it's it's funny that the, Wicked is his most famous, but he still has Pippin. He still has Godspell. Like he still has oh, all yeah. these shows that are still also so uh, well known. Children of Eden gets done so often. Um, even like Baker's Wife, the magic show, they all have at least like songs. Oh yeah, they're not done. Like Meadowlark is so uh, you know well known. Um, magic show has a song west end avenue that is oh yeah from that so it's like even his lesser known musicals still have these well-known songs and trevor nunn said uh, uh, or at least uh, the point is made uh, in the the book divine gravity that uh, uh, trevor nunn wanted to bring back the baker's wife because he kept hearing some of the songs from it in auditions. Mm. Well, uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, I mean, obviously, yeah, mm-hmm. Schwartz uh, just wrote the uh, lyrics uh, for that, but uh, uh, certainly yeah, that uh, has the uh, Schwartz device of uh, narration. The uh, opening uh, number is uh, narrated by uh, Clopin. Mm-hmm. I'm excited that is being 
made into a theatrical piece. Like that's I feel like it's such a special movie that maybe didn't quite fit with what Disney was doing at the time and Exactly. Uh or what Disney does in general. <laughs> and uh but it's still like had a lot of great stuff in it. Well, I made the point in my review. Actually, Disney does have a, a something of a history of uh, darker material. Yeah. There's a segment in uh, Fantasia, The Night in Bald Mountain, that's pretty dark. Uh, but it's also fair to say that, uh, at least in the mid-90s, the uh, Disney brand did carry with it certain expectations, which uh, led them to vastly uh, change some things in the book. Mm. And then when the stage show was actually uh, adapted, that uh, Peter Parnell wrote the uh, libretto. What they actually did was uh, wrote a script that he was much closer to the original Victor Hugo novel, but kept the songs from the uh, film. But Schwartz uh, rewrote some of his lyrics. Prince of Egypt is also another interesting uh, film musical that he did. Uh, Which has recently become a stage show. Yes, that's also going to become a stage show. Um, when think, You Believe is a great song. Yeah, yeah. that. I mean, that's my, definitely my favorite song from that show. But yeah, it's such an interesting score. And I I didn't realize that there was a whole like DreamWorks, Disney schism <laughs> or rift well, at I, that time where he went I didn't over. Know until I read uh, Defying Gravity was... Yeah. Schwartz was actually supposed to write the score for uh, Mulan. Right. And they actually dropped him from that because he decided to uh, write for DreamWorks, and which wasn't his choice. He wanted to do both Mulan and Prince of Egypt, but at the time, uh, Disney was uh, like, no, sorry, you need to be exclusive. Mm. They didn't like uh, one of their writers going off and uh, writing for a rival because, of course... Katzenberg had had a falling out with uh, Disney and gone and co-founded uh, right. DreamWorks, and that whole thing was very sensitive back then. Obviously, you know, things somehow must have been patched up uh, subsequently because uh, Schwartz has since uh, done both uh, Enchanted and its mm. equal Disenchanted for Disney, which obviously uh, both are more broadly comic than the films uh, Schwartz previously wrote for Disney. But yeah, what, uh, Prince of Egypt, and especially when you believe is is um, I don't know. It just feels so deeply felt in this um, to have the Hebrew to have the uh, the duet, like the women duet, like I, that. Oh yeah, and even though there's not really parent child the tension that I remember, there's certainly the tension between the brothers. Right. And it, it, one could almost uh, say there's the yeah, tension that. It's also echoed in uh, Wicked between uh, do you go with uh, what the establishment would dictate or do you go with your conscience? Yeah. Yeah, that definitely, that feels like a theme <laughs> uh, in a lot of his his shows. Like Pippin, he's, you know, breaking away from establishment, like following his his path or his conscience or... And one can say that uh, doing Prince of Egypt is sort of a homecoming for Schwartz, having uh, written things like uh, Godspell and Children of Eden, mm-hmm. which are religious themes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's not even that religious a, a person, I don't think. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. Yeah, I don't answer it. I don't know. I mean, I think uh, he's... Uh, been fairly open that uh, at least he has a Jewish background, yeah. but it's, uh, he, he's certainly not uh, overly vocal about it. But yeah, yeah, it's just interesting. Uh, it just informs his work. Right. I was uh, reading a bit of his uh, uh, biography, and what I was interested to uh, discover was that uh, Children of Eden actually uh, started as a work that was uh, written for a high school. It was oh, yeah. written in 96 as a show called The Family Tree. No, I'm sorry, 86. Oh, okay. it, it was written in 1986 and then uh, for this high school, mm-hmm. and then it was retitled, and then in the 90s it uh, started getting professional productions. Yeah. And I honestly don't know how much of the original score made it to the version we know now, but I found that an interesting, shall we say, genesis. 
Yeah, I feel like he writes a lot of things for very specific situations that then kind of become uh, something more broad. Like, I think, well, Godspell, uh, I think, started as, like, a small a small uh, show. I mean, it was off-Broadway, but it seemed like, from what I read about it, it started as, like, a small thing. Both Godspell and Pippin. I think Pippin, he started when he was in college. Right, right. And it was called Pippin Pippin at that point, and then that got cut down to one Pippin. <laughs> but, uh, Godspell uh, started uh, as a, a college project by other hands. Then when Schwartz was brought into it, I think uh, that was uh, on a professional uh, basis by then. But, yeah. But, but yeah. both of them had very youthful beginnings. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, and I non-theatrically i i was part of like um he wrote a piece for the gay men's chorus uh testimony and uh i was i sang um the first i think version that was for mixed voices um, Oh wow! it's a really nice piece uh yeah it's, it's like a just a really lovely choral work he also had and he did a the opera uh, seance on a wet afternoon. Oh, what, what afternoon. That has a lovely uh, song in it called uh, Lucky. Mm. The main thrust uh, behind that is, that, is the situation behind it is uh, a little dark because uh, this right. uh, woman kidnaps a child. But uh, right. the thrust of the song, she's this aria she sings, is that the people who had you are so lucky to have you in their lives. And the, too often we don't. I think I may be quoting the actual lyric here, but the idea of the song is too often we don't appreciate to what we uh, have until it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's does. I I also like how he um he you know doesn't just write the you know musical theater work or musical theater for movies. You know mm-hmm. he he works in a lot of different uh, realms, which is which is cool too. And I also like how with uh, working, he actually uh, opened it up a bit and uh, gave uh, other songwriters mm-hmm. an opportunity to uh, contribute, including uh, Mickey Grant, yeah, uh, Mary Rogers, I think Susan, Susan Bergenhant in that, I think so, mm-hmm. and uh, Craig O'Malley. Yeah. yeah, and that's such a cool piece, too. I mean, that's such a, because he, that was, uh, like, he was a conceiver of that, so like. Right. That and he wrote the book with Nina Faiso, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a cool it's just a cool piece. So it's cool that he was I know he doesn't write book, but it generally, but um he's still part of that uh side of things with that show at least. Right. Let's move on to the why is this so good section. We're gonna stay talking about Stephen Schwartz because we're gonna talk about the opening number to Wicked, No One Mourns the Wicked. Uh, so yeah, why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Uh, well, several r- reasons. First, I love the uh, orchestral play- prelude that mm-hmm. uh, starts the number, which uh, echoes uh, a song we'll hear much uh, uh, later, uh, I think it's called it As Long As Your Mind. It's a duet for uh, Alphaba and uh, Fierro. Uh, and of course, what we uh, later learn is that whole scene uh, is actually a decoy so that uh, Alphabet and Fierro can uh, be together. Mm-hmm. So, I, I just love the intensity of uh, the orchestration for that. Yeah. Uh, but then no, uh, I love how unsettling uh, it is because of the changes of uh, mood. First, we have this uh, bit that's uh, a direct descendant from Ding Dong, which is uh, dead. Uh, and then, but then there's this. Uh, nastier uh, bit that uh, quotes the title phrase but then we get right after that we get the uh, and goodness knows the wicked's lives are lonely which is uh, a lot more uh, ballady and all all this jumble of uh, motifs sort of uh, keeps us on our toes and it really gives a sense of uh, how uh, not entirely nice this uh, whole world is
ASEANS. Let us be glad, let us be grateful, let us rejoice if I that goodness could subdue the wicked workings of you. It's also, it goes back to what Schwartz used in you know, storytelling within the show. Glinda takes both uh, the uh, Munchkins uh, and us through uh, Elphaba's uh, backstory, mm-hmm. uh, her uh, birth and the circumstances uh, before that. But then I also find it interesting how what, No One Wins the Wicked borrows from uh, musical theater uh, Tropes. It reminds me of both the uh, Requiem for uh, Evita from uh, uh, Evita by starting with the uh, uh, death, or at least in this case, a supposed death, and then moving backward. But then they also at the end repeat the word wicked, which I find to be kind of a twist on the title song from Mame, in which uh, obviously in that case the character is the loved rather than mm. the spies. But I find that an interesting device. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much going on in this song. It's it's a really great opening number. We get introduced to Glinda a lot <laughs> in this number. Um cuz she kind of that's when she comes in in her bubble. Um and her soprano voice, which yeah. is not what she uses there's an interesting dichotomy between uh, how she sings when she's uh, performatively addressing, you know, everyone and then when she's just having regular interactions with other characters yeah yeah i always thought with wicked it's so interesting the the how like they use the different voice parts for the women like one is like this the the like it's kind of like two expressions of of women vocal power um, Absolutely. like Glinda has like that high soprano that is very operatic and then Elphaba has that the belt you know um, and uh, so it's uh, it's just cool to see both of those uh, being equally powerful in a in a musical but uh, but also I mean we get without having Elphaba even come on the scene, basically, we get introduced to her. It's just like one of those uh, devices, I guess, that, you know, this is our main character. We're going to talk about her before <laughs> before you meet her or meet them. And, uh, for you know, you'll get to know them through what we think about her. You know? Which goes back to Pippin, the leading, uh, both, both uh, the leading player uh, who uh, wants to, uh, harm to come to Pippin, uh, mm. ultimately, and Catherine, who ends up uh, saving him by offering him uh, another uh, way. Both those characters uh, 
talk about Pippin. Yeah. Uh, describe his actions to the uh, audience. And so Wicked sort of recalls that. Yeah, that's true. I was also thinking of like, like the music man where, I mean, he, we don't realize he's actually on the, the train, but well, we're going to talk about Harold Hill for a while before he exactly. shows up. So you get to know him through. And it leaves us wanting to uh, see what the guy's actually like. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think a similar thing is is happening here. Um, and like, it also is introducing like the themes of the show. Like, what is what does it mean to be wicked? Like, the like good. What is goodness versus wickedness? Uh, like, it's all absolutely in here. And we were talking earlier about the uh, uh, unlimited, or later the I'm limited uh, mm. motif, and we hear that right away in the opening number too, because it's uh, in that uh, instrumental prologue. Right. Right. The, some of those lyrics uh, remind me of uh, uh, sort of a, a very yeah, acidic version of Proverbs. Uh, a lot of that is a good man scorns the wicked. Mm-hmm. That, that, that sounds uh, very similar to uh, what's in the book of uh, Proverbs, except harsher. Yeah, it does have, it does feel like, yeah, that they're using, yeah, like these biblical text, uh, this biblical language, you know, to to determine good and goodness versus wickedness. Which is absolutely perfect because uh, uh, then in the uh, opening number to the second uh, act, uh, we have uh, them saying, thank goodness, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Which uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, a sequence in the, the best little whorehouse in Texas, which, and I may be conflating the film with the stage show, but there's a, a, a scene where this, uh, uh, evangelist or some television personality saying, oh, this is so going on. And this backup chorus says, oh, save our soul. Mm. It strikes me as that same kind of thing because both are about hypocrisy. Yeah. I did want to bring it back to those opening, that opening music that you talked about. Cause I think it's just such a, an amazing opening. Like I just remember being in the theater Everyone's talking and you know getting ready, situated, and those chords that da, 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 da. they grab your attention. Don't I know, they? and everyone, it's like, oh, it's start, you know, it's starting. Like, what's have like it? It's like a kind of like a pronouncement. And you know, it's not going to be the Wizard of Oz. It may share the same universe, but it's definitely uh, not the version we know. Yeah. Great. Um, so yeah, let's move mm-hmm. on to our final section. Something wonderful. Uh, we're just something in the musical theater world that we're excited about or want to give a shout out to. Well, yeah, there are a couple of uh, books I'm uh, interested in uh, uh, reading. Uh, there's, uh, I mean, we've been talking about uh, uh, Godspell a bit uh, and Stephen Schwartz, but uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber was also born March, and uh, there's he obviously did. Uh, a couple of uh, religious uh, themed musicals too. Mm-hmm. And one is uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, later in, uh, I think in September, I believe, there's going to be uh, uh, an update slash uh, uh, re release of a, a book uh, by an uh, author named uh, Ellis Nassour about uh, that show. Mm. It uh, covers the uh, I think it covers everything from the concept album, uh, then the stage show, and then the film. That looks interesting. I'm also interested in uh, Attack of the Monster musical by uh, Adam Abraham. I know you recently discussed The Little Shop of Horrors on the podcast, and that's a book about the making of that show. Oh, that's I, cool. I started reading a bit of that, and what looks interesting is it really you know, uh, covers the... You know, Sort of the dynamic between uh, Howard Ashman and uh, Alan Menken, mm-hmm. and some of what they were uh, doing uh, leading up to that. Uh, uh, the author makes an interesting uh, point in that uh, book because uh, another show they were working on around the same uh, time was uh, Babe, which is a, a baseball musical. Oh. In fact, Debbie Grabbit did a song from that on her uh, album, and the author makes the interesting. Uh, point that uh, if you take uh, Babe and Little Shop of Horrors together, you have uh, all the elements in the damn Yankees. You have uh, 
baseball and you have this uh, very Faustian yeah. uh, story. And then the, uh, the next uh, show I'm going to review is uh, at the Passage Theater in uh, Trenton, New Jersey. They're putting on a, a musical called The uh, Clean Slate. Hmm. Uh, which, uh, as I yeah, understand it, it's a, a teenage themed uh, show, and I think there may be a, a bit of fantasy in that. I think uh, uh, they're at this uh, camp, and uh, they actually uh, are haunted by your uh, previous uh, uh, visitors to that camp. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, Clean Slate is a new musical that tells the story of a group of disaffected high school students who are sent to a rehabilitation camp that may or may not also be haunted by the souls of former campers who have gone missing. Hmm. A story of radical empathy, the piece explores the need to remember who we used to be in order to move forward. Hmm. It has music and lyrics by Kate uh, Brennan, a book by uh, David Lee uh, White, and uh, it's a uh, uh, directed by uh, uh, C. Ryan Dominguez, the artistic director of that theater. That sounds interesting. Yeah, that does sound really cool. Uh, I'll add, uh, I uh, know that there's going to be a musical version of uh, Fievel and American Tale. Uh, really? Yeah, it's going to be at a Children's Theater Company in uh, Minneapolis in April. Okay. And... Uh, Itamar Moses, who did uh, the uh, book for Fans Visit, is writing the book and lyrics with Michael Mahler and Alan Schmuckler. Okay. Uh, so, I hope they can interpolate somewhere out there, because I think that's a lovely tune. Yeah, 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 I'm sure they're... I, I mean, I don't see how you could have Fievel without that song. Without that song I agree. So... And our, our birthday boy Schwartz has a couple of projects in the pipeline that sound very interesting. He's uh, uh, doing a, a show about the librettist of the Magic Flute. Oh, yeah, I think I heard about that. Writing about uh, Marley mm. from the Christmas Carol. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad he has has project. I mean, of course, I'm excited for his projects based on the movies uh, he's already written for. But I'm, I'm, you know. I'm glad he's working on original stuff as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to our Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.